Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 37 of History on Fire. If you find yourself in a particularly generous mood, or if you are allergic to ads, please consider joining my Patreon list. The link is uh, in under any of the episode at historyonfirepodcast.com for the people who like to support the podcast directly. Thank you guys so much. This month we have a new sponsor, a company that decided to sponsor a History on Fire for the next three episodes. I am ridiculously excited about it because I really, really like their products and I'm dying to try them out. The company is Nordic Track, and these guys make some seriously amazing exercise equipment from treadmills, exercise bikes, incline trainers, all sorts of stuff for strength and conditioning. Specifically, I have my eyes on this one product. They, have, uh, they produce this treadmill that can function as a desk. The idea behind it being, you know, we all spend way too many hours a day in front of a computer. Well, at least I sure do. I know that much. And sometimes I just don't find the time to either have my daily workout or go for a walk or anything like that. So I really like the idea of having a treadmill that can function as my work desk, where I can either leisurely stroll as I'm typing away, or if I decide to up the cardio a little bit and go for a run, it's also well equipped for that as well. So that's the one thing, I mean, to be honest, I really want to try all of their stuff, but that's the one thing I want to try more than anything else. So if you could also use some seriously excellent exercise equipment, there's a special offer for History on Fire listeners. You can get $75 off your Nordic Track purchase by visiting nordictrack.com forward slash history and using the offer code history. Again, that's Nordic Track, N-O-R-D-I-C-T-R-A-C-K dot com forward slash history. And you can use the offer code HISTORY to save $75 off your purchase. Also sponsoring this episode is Blue Apron, the same way as they have been sponsoring all year long and they will continue through the end of December. I love Blue Apron. I, I think by now you guys have gotten the message that I am in this household. Blue Apron deliveries are always ridiculously welcome. Their stuff incredibly tasty ingredients, fairly easy to make. I cannot speak well enough about their stuff. So if you 
if you just like to try, you know, you decide I'm not so sure whether it is for me or not, just try it out one time. Because you get some three free meals if you go to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's three free meals. That's kind of hard to say no to. You know, you, you can try it for free, eat some great food, and if you decide it's not for you, then you don't renew it. So you go to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. But I get the feeling that after you try, you may want to stick around for more. Also sponsoring this episode is the Human Circus podcast by Devon Field. Human Circus follows the journeys of medieval travelers, from friars to crusaders, ambassadors, pilgrims, and all sorts of other people who recorded their travels. And we have direct evidence of some of the crazy things that were going on during medieval times. You know, we, we have this idea that medieval times everybody was living and dying in their little village and while that's true for a large percentage of the population it's also quite incredible to think of the numbers of people who literally traveled across the globe from people who may have been born in France and they find themselves in the Mongol capital witnessing the raising of a new can or, you know, there are all sorts of crazy stories there. I started listening recently to the ones he did about, he did a series about European travelers reaching the Mongols, which makes for a great companion to Dan Carlin's famous series, Rat of the Cans. So check it out. Uh, these stories really show you how interconnected the medieval world was. So if you want to check him out, it's Human Circus Podcast. Uh, as usual, you can find it on iTunes, you can find its website, and all other places where podcasts are distributed. Big thank you to my regular sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. If you decide to try out Onnit products, which is something I strongly recommend, you can go to onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount. These days, in particular, I'm consuming their instant alpha brain like there's no tomorrow. I really enjoy it. Often, before I sit down to record an episode, I'll take it. It works like a charm for me. And that's Usara for the greatest hemp gear on the planet. You can go to dsgear.com. They have bags, backpacks, travel bags, even martial arts uniform, all made of hemp. High quality, great designs check those guys out uh, big shout out also to nevertapgear.com for sponsoring our editor chef and resident muse and artist and 10,000 other things savannah m so thank you guys at never tap gear if you want to check them out they make knee braces to help protect your knees while you're working out i use them i dig them check them out uh, one last thing I should mention, I was recently a guest on an episode of the History of Vikings podcast, so if you want to check those guys out, that's another podcast for you. Having said all that, I know you guys are in a hurry to get to the episode, so I will shut up with this section, and without further ado, let's go set history on fire. Welcome to the second and last part of the story of the 47 Ronin. If you haven't listened to the first part of the story, it's probably a good idea to put this episode on pause and go back to the previous one and listen to that one first. 
because set, that sets the stage. Now, a lot of the first episode was useful, but background information was kind of setting up the incident that took place in 1701, and we just barely got at the beginning of the incident when a daimyo was kind of like a feudal warlord by the name of uh, Asano Naganori. And by the way, when I say warlord, that really is no longer accurate in 1701, because the time when the different daimyos were fighting one another, it was already over. By now, it had been almost a hundred years of peace under the Tokugawa shogun. So the daimyos were now more, much like their samurais, they were no longer warriors as much as they were bureaucrats, more often than not. But in any case, back to our tale. Asano Naganori was this feudal lord who uh, was invited to take an important role at the court of the shogun in this one particular occasion when he was in charge of receiving the emperor's emissaries and performed this ceremony with them and exchanging gifts. Uh, Azano, however, had different ideas, and he let something else catch his attention, specifically a squabble with a court official named Kira Yoshihisa, who was the guy in charge of overseeing this ceremonial exchange with the emperor emissaries. We have no idea why they got into a fight, but in the fight they did get. And as a result, when Azano pulled out his sword trying to kill Kira, he broke one of the cardinal rules that could get your head on a chopping block. You do not draw a blade inside the shogun's palace, ever, for any reason. The fact that Azano had done this meant that the shogun didn't take it well. So his orders were simple. Asano was to slice and dice himself in an act of ritual suicide. You know, we talked in episode one a lot about the, the tradition of seppuku. That's exactly what Asano had to do. His family land was to be confiscated, and his samurai would now become ronin, or masterless samurai. In other words, they were no longer employed by anybody, and they would have to figure out what to do with their lives. On the other hand, Kira Yoshihisa was not punished, because the way the shogun saw it, Kira had done nothing. You know, Asano had attacked him, Kira had barely even defended himself. Asano, despite this, had managed not to kill Kira, and so that was the end of it for the shogun. Kira didn't do anything to deserve punishment. Well, that's not the way... Asano's samurai saw it. We don't know whether they did or did not know what had caused the fight between their lord and Kira Yoshihisa, but to them it almost didn't matter. The point was, the way they saw it, Kira had done something to instigate the incident, and whereas now their lord was dead, Kira was getting away with no punishment, and that didn't sit very well with them. In the meantime, back at Ominako, which was the family province that Asano Naganori ruled over, we have a samurai in his early 40s named Oishi Yoshio, who was in charge of running things in place of his lord. If you have great memory, you may remember Oishi's name from the very beginning of our first episode. He was the guy planning revenge on that snowy night in Edo. 
But that night I opened the first part of this series, which was still many months away from this point in the story. At present, Oishi had something else on his mind. Specifically, he had to figure out what to do. The news from Edo, well, it was just devastating for the nearly 300 samurai in the service of the Asano clan. Not only was their lord dead, that's bad enough, but if Asano's brother wasn't allowed to inherit the land, they would all be stripped of their samurai status and would become ronin, or masterless samurai. The characters, the Japanese characters for the word ronin, are made with a character for men and one for wave. So the literal translation would be wave man. The meaning being that a samurai without a master, which is what a ronin was, was like a boat cut loose and adrift in the waves without the safety of a harbor where to return. So becoming a ronin meant they would be condemned to poverty, since no one was paying them, and the odds of anyone hiring them were pretty slim because there were no wars requiring the services of fighting men, and most lords could barely afford to pay the samurai they already had. Plus, if that wasn't bad enough, on top of it all, there were laws limiting the numbers of samurai that the lord could hire. These laws were being put in place for the sake of preventing any possible rebellions or things like that. So, more often than not, when samurai were to become ronin, many of them would turn to banditry, or in some cases they would join organized crime. Alternatively, they could become priests or pick up odd jobs that were considered beneath the status of a samurai, and yet status doesn't pay the bills, so you know if that's what you had to do, that's what you had to do. Moral of the story, becoming a ronin was not something that any of them was excited about. So when news of what had happened reached them, there had been a division among them regarding what to do. Some of them wanted to strike out in revenge against Kira. Few of these guys named uh, Horibe Yahei, Okuda Magodayo, and Takada Gunbei were some of the leaders of this faction. But a few others among them instead rightly saw that this would have been a suicidal and ultimately unproductive move. Kira's mansion, in fact, was heavily guarded for fear of an attack. And so if attacking Kira wasn't an option, well, then some samurai were thinking maybe we should just barricade ourselves inside the castle and we'll refuse to turn it over to the shogun. This, however, was also a suicidal move, since the shogun could crush the resistance of 300 samurai anytime he felt like it. 300 samurai weren't going to do anything, you know, the shogun could just send a huge army that would wipe them off the face of the earth, before morning breakfast, you know, it wouldn't really be an issue for him. So Oishi, our samurai leader I mentioned a minute ago, Oishi was instrumental in convincing the more belligerent samurai to obey the shogun's orders and agree to vacate their lands. He told them that fighting now would serve no purpose other than just dying a useless death. Also, in light of his later action, 
he probably gave them some hope by saying that he would try to petition the shogun to try to restore the lands to the Asano family. He sent a letter to Edo, saying that his men couldn't understand why Kira was not also punished for this incident, since clearly he must have done something to provoke their lord. Oishi was just trying to do his best to save what could be saved for the Asano clan, trying to convince the shogun to let Asano's brother inherit the land. Now, if that happened, all the samurai could get their job back. Yes, their lord was dead, that was bad, but at least they would get to keep the land, they would get to keep their job. So based on his actions, it seems that at this point in the story he wasn't quite hot about the idea of dying for revenge. The shogun, however, snubbed Oishi's requests. Kira was just not going to be punished, and at least for the time being, Asano's brother wasn't going to inherit anything. So in light of this, the samurai had little choice but to disband. There's a whole debate on whether at this moment the samurai were simply trying to figure out what to do next, or whether they were already hatching a plan to gain revenge. Historians debate this back and forth. Realities, nobody knows. A popular theory holds that the seeds of revenge were planted by the teachings of a philosopher and a samurai named Yamaga Soko, who lived between 1622 and 1685. Yamaga was a Confucian scholar and he heavily stressed loyalty in his writings. He was considered a great intellectual, and he had been employed for quite a while by the Asano clan as a guest teacher. During that time, Oishi had a chance to study with him. And as I mentioned earlier, or rather in the previous episode, the 1600s, which were the beginning of the Tokugawa era, so the role of the samurai changing. The lack of constant warfare pushed the samurai to transform from being simply ultra-tough killing machines to instead emphasizing a gentler side of life. They were encouraged to become skilled not just in martial arts but in literary arts. And it's at this juncture in history that the philosophy of Bushido the idea of a code of behavior expected from the samurai was beginning to be developed. And Yamaga Soko's writings played a big role in this regard. As a renowned author about all things Japanese, Stephen Turnbull writes, the central question for Yamaga Soko was this. What was the role of the military class in an age of peace? His conclusion was that the samurai had to act as exemplars to the rest of society, particularly by setting an example of devotion to duty. Now, quite a few people who have studied the tale of the 47 Ronin believe that precisely this idea of devotion to duty for one's lord helped shape the 47 Ronin plan for revenge. There was no realistic way to strike against the shogun for their lord's death. That simply wasn't going to happen. But perhaps, just maybe, they could have a shot at killing Kira. As I mentioned, it's not really entirely clear whether Ronin knew 
what Kira had done to Seth or Fasano. Either way, the way the Ronin saw it, Kira was their lord's enemy, and he was the one who had started the sequence of events leading to their lord's death, and to their being stripped of samurai rank. So regardless of the reason, Asano and Kira had started a fight, but Asano had failed to kill his rival. So it was their duty to bring him down and thus honor their dead lord, and in the process redeem their own honor as well. The historical details of what happened next are hazy, to say the least. There's a theory floating around suggesting that at this time Oishi and some of his comrades swore a secret oath that they would avenge their lord and they would make Kira pay. Secret oaths and revenge plots are my bread and butter, so I'm totally sold on this. And it turns out I don't necessarily have to abandon faithfulness to historical truth to buy into this. We definitely do know that at some point they chose this course of action. They were ready to roll with this plan by the time many of them moved to Edo in late 1702, after the shogun had made it clear that he was not going to restore the lands to Asano brother. What we don't know is when exactly they decided to take this path. The fact is we have no idea when the plotting started, and we also have no idea how many of Asano's former samurai were in on it and just dropped out along the way. It's actually, when you think about it, it's quite amazing that no one among those who decided not to participate, none of them, leaked the word of the plan to either the shogun or Akira. You can imagine there was probably quite a bit of money that would be provided in reward for that kind of information. So this speaks volume about the cohesiveness among them and their loyalty toward one another. Which is sweet and all, but agreeing to a revenge plan and being able to carry it out are two very different things. Successfully attacking Kira was clearly a whole lot easier said than done. Kira had plenty of guards on staff, so trying to attack when his guard was up would have been suicidal. Oishi and his guys were not going to be rash. Oishi was playing the long game, because it was the only one with any chance of success. The fact that months would go by before Oishi and company decided to take action is something that greatly annoyed Yamamoto Tsunetomo, a contemporary of Oishi and friends, and the author of the Hagakure, which today is widely considered one of the philosophical classics of samurai philosophy. Yamamoto wanted, in his writings, he preached immediate action, regardless of the consequences. Here are a couple of quotes from the Hagakure that can clue you in to his thinking. He says, some say that to die without accomplishing one's mission is to die in vain. But this is the calculating, imitation samurai ethic of arrogant Osaka merchants. So, based on the above, you can probably guess what Yamamoto had to say about Oishi's decision to wait for the right time to strike out in revenge. Here is the passage of the Hagakure that deals specifically with Oishi and his Ronin. Here Yamamoto writes, The way of revenge lies in simply forcing one's way into a place and being cut down. There is no shame in this. 
By thinking that you must complete the job, you will run out of time. By considering things like how many men the enemy has, time piles up. And in the end, you will give up. No matter if the enemy has thousands of men, there is fulfillment in simply standing them off and being determined to cut them all down, starting from one end. You will finish the greater part of it. Concerning the night assault of Lord Asanos Ronin, the fact that they did not commit seppuku at the Sengakuji was an error, for there was a long delay between the time the Lord was struck down and the time when they struck down the enemy. If Lord Kira had died of illness within that period, it would have been extremely regrettable. And in a later passage he says, Although all things are not to be judged in this manner, I mention it in the investigation of the way of the samurai. When the time comes, there is no moment for reasoning. And if you have not done your inquiring beforehand, there is most often shame. Reading books and listening to people's talk are for the purpose of prior resolution. Among other things, this is where this passage gets intense, where he says, among other things, the way of the samurai requires that he realize that something may occur at any moment to test the depth of his resolution, and day and night he must sort out his thought and prepare a line of action. Depending on the circumstances, he may win or lose. But avoiding dishonor is quite a separate consideration from winning or losing. It is simply in death. Even if it seems certain that you will lose, retaliate. Neither wisdom nor technique has a place in this. A real samurai thinks not of victory or defeat, but merely fights insanely to the death. That's quite a quote right there. In other words, in Yamamoto's opinion, Oishi was too calculating in his approach. His choice to wait for the right time to strike, in order to maximize the odds of success, struck Yamamoto's sensibility as unsamurai-like. According to Yamamoto, it's better to fail while showing loyalty to one's lord and displaying bravery than it is to succeed at avenging him. Oishi clearly disagreed. Asano's failure in killing Kira, in his view, could only be remedied with success, not with another failure. In his estimate, the course of action that Yamamoto recommended would only result in an empty gesture, just a stupid move to prove a point and pet your little samurai ego rather than obtain a tangible result. Of course, we can't get inside Oishi said but it seems like, in his opinion, Yamamoto's approach would just be a way to just show off for everybody, saying, hey, look how loyal I am while dying a useless death. Nothing more than an impulsive failure, paying lip service to honor, whereas true honor, true loyalty, would be better served through a patient, successful revenge. We actually have some words written down by one of the Asano Ronin, a certain Oribe Yasubei, that cl- kind of clarified the disagreement with the author of the Agakure. Oribe wrote, In these circumstances, you will be difficult to accomplish our mission and useless to die in vain. 
it does not make sense to die fighting simply to clear our personal honor. So that right there is a philosophical clash between two different sets of people believing very different things about what it means to be a hon honorable samurai. You know, Yamamoto's approach, you know, the stuff that you find in the Hagakure is like, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, you step up and do what's needed. Too many consideration about winning or losing will rob you of your bravery, will rob you of your resolution, and will just make you too calculating. The other guys, people like Oishi, people like Horibe Yasubei, they tell you, ah, oh, come on, that's just stupid, that's just not, you know, the point is not just to do something in the name of abstract honor, the point is to be effective. Being effective means that we need to get the job done, not just die trying. Die trying, not quite good enough. Depending on which mood I am in, I can totally see it both ways. You know, both of them actually make perfect sense to me. So that's my usual... Uh, I don't know, I have a tendency to... I enjoy looking at things from more than one viewpoint. And so I find myself being able, if not to agree, because ultimately you need to take a stand and make a decision, at least to understand where different people sometimes arguing with one another may be coming from. In any case, popular renditions of what happens next tell us that Uishi went to Kyoto and began spending his days gambling, drinking and consorting with geishas, overall giving off the impression that he really wasn't too broken up about the loss of his lord. This behavior would give the impression to anyone keeping an eye on him that any thoughts of revenge for his lord's death were, if at all existent, a distant second to his desire for alcohol and women. And there were definitely eyes on him, since Kira was understandably interested in what was going on through the minds of former Asano samurai. So Kira had spies checking up on their own his movements to spot signs of any planned revenge. Less than charitable commentators suggest that maybe this wasn't an act at all. After all, Oishi was known for his fondness for drinking even before this time. But in light of what will happen later, there seemed to be at least some foundation to the idea that Oishi was trying to throw off any spies who were on his track. Perhaps mixing a little pleasure with business. Popular rumors tell us that day after day Kira spies would go back to their boss and report on what they had seen. Is he plotting to attack me? No, today he wrecked the Saki Tavern and spent the night with three ladies. Next day. What about today? Uh, he was drunk. Next day. What about today? Uh, still drunk. And some other Ronin had become merchants and monks clearly indicating that revenge didn't seem to be on their minds either. Kira, however, wanted to make sure, and he was not in a hurry, so he kept up the surveillance for a long time. So Ishii spent the rest of 1701 and most of 1702 in Kyoto, carrying on in a seemingly dishonorable fashion through loud public drunkenness and other conduct very much unbecoming of a samurai mourning his lord. What is almost certainly a fictionalized account that was um, 
passed along through various kabuki plays, tell us that on one day a man, in some version is a samurai, in some versions is just some regular man from the Satsuma domain, so Oishi drunk on the street passed out and yelled at him for doing nothing to avenge his lord. Disgusted with his lack of dignity, the Satsuma man spit on Oishi and kicked him. While this particular episode is probably an embellishment of the truth, there is a possibility that Oishi was indeed intentionally behaving in a way to throw Kira's spies off his tracks. It's little wonder that this phase has received plenty of attention in the restelling of the tale in kabuki theaters, novels and movies. That's because it makes for a great story. In a culture where saving face and upholding one's honor are paramount, the idea of a samurai accepting to lose face and honor in the worst possible way for extremely honorable reasons, such as avenging one lord, is as powerful as it gets. You know, choosing to seem disloyal in public for the sake of actually being super loyal is the kind of honor-based conundrum that would strike a chord with the Japanese audience. So not surprisingly, regardless of whether some of these events really happened or not, they have been told time and time again in Kabuki plays. There's a famous Zen story that kind of hints at this point. I found it in a great little collection of Zen tales called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. The key character in this particular story is uh, Hakuin Ekaku, one of the most important teachers of Rinzai Zen from the 1700s. Here is how the short story goes. Zen master Hakuin was praised by his neighbors as one living a pure life. A beautiful young woman whose parents owned a food store lived near him. When her parents discovered she was pregnant, they got very angry. No matter how much her parents questioned her, the young lady would not confess who the father was. But after much harassment, she said Hakuin was the father. In great anger, the parents went to the Zen master and confronted him with this accusation. Is that so? was all he would say. After the child was born, he was brought to Hakuin. By this time, he had lost his reputation. He was supposed to be this holy monk, this spiritual leader to whom people turned for guidance, and instead he was seducing young women and having kids out of marriage? Just scandalous. Hakuin, however, did nothing to defend his reputation. He just didn't seem to be troubled at all by his sudden loss of status. However, he took very good care of the child. He obtained milk from his neighbors and everything else that the little one may need. A year later, the young woman couldn't stand the lie any longer, so she told her parents the truth, that the real father of the child was not Hakuin, but was a young man who worked in the fish market. The mother and father of the girl were mortified, and at once they went to Hakuin to ask his forgiveness, apologize at length, and of course to get the child back again. And in returning the child, all that Hakuin said was, Is that so? The reason why this story is recorded as something exceptional and worthy of a great Zen master 
is because in many ways Hakuin's behavior runs completely counter to the cultural anxiety of her saving face and upholding one's reputation that was so common in Japan. The idea that someone who is innocent of the charges wouldn't bother defending himself or being crushed by the public embarrassment seems almost Martian in that cultural context. And the parallels between the Akuin story I just mentioned and the way some sources tell us who she was behaving are pretty obvious. Akuin just didn't make a fuss about his innocence or try to save his public image. Oishi, if sources on this are to be trusted, actually went out of his way to ruin his reputation. But Hakuin was indeed innocent of the charges, and Oishi destroyed his reputation for very honorable goals. So in a sense, his seemingly dishonorable behavior, his accepting a complete loss of face, was the height of loyalty and honor. In paradoxical fashion, of course. Speaking of seemingly dishonorable behavior, Oishi divorced his wife of 20 years. The official reason he gave is because, or rather, the official reason that emerges, because I don't remember exactly in detail who's writing it down, but basically the official reason is because he was a drunk and wasn't taking care of her. So, to make the whole thing even worse, he has to agree to divorce his wife. Unofficially, at least that's what his supporters argue, Oishi was just trying to spare her the backlash. He was sure he would come if his secret plans were to be successful. His two younger kids left with their mother to go live with relatives. The eldest boy, Chikara, was given the choice of whether to go with his siblings or join his father instead. The choice seemed to be a no-brainer. After all, joining his father meant accepting nearly certain death. And yet, that's exactly what Chikara chose. Attacking Kira was a dangerous gamble. In the best-case scenario, they would manage to kill him, and then they would be executed. Yes, you heard right. If you can believe that being ordered to commit seppuku or having their heads cut off was the best-case scenario. Which kind of makes you not want to know what the worst-case scenario was. But the Ronin were obviously aware of what this could be. In the words of author Andrew Rankin, the attack is a disaster, they are captured and beheaded without honor, their brothers and sons are executed, their wives and daughters are sold as slaves, and Kira lives happily ever after. Yeah, that doesn't sound so good. In my time, I've heard of more cheerful options. So this is the reason why some of them, Oishi first and foremost, were cutting ties with their families so that hopefully they wouldn't have to be punished as well, since technically they had broken the familial connection before Oishi and his guys would break any law. By the end of 1702, what the Ronin had been waiting for finally happened. It seemed that Kira had relaxed his guard a bit. You know, it cost a lot of money to keep spies checking up on Azanon Ronins all the time. And it seemed clear by now that it was just a waste of money. What was the point anyway? Azano's Ronin by now had amply proven they were dishonorable drunks, more interested in spending their time and energy exploring the bottom of sake bottles 
than in doing their duty, avenging their lord. And so Kira stopped having people watch Oishi and company 24-7. He felt safe and dropped his guard. Not being constantly under watch was step one. But in order to pull off a successful attack, the Ronin needed information about the large household in which Kira lived. It's not entirely clear how they gained the info they needed about the layout of Kira's palace. Some versions, almost certainly fictionalized, tell us some Ronin managed to be hired as workers to help repair Kira's house, and that one of them, a certain Okano Kinemon Kanehide, even married the daughter of the architect who built the place so as to be able to find out every detail about it from his father-in-law. These are very likely embellishments to the story created by the writers of the Kabuki place that would be staged about the 47th Ronin tale. But either way, somehow, okay, maybe not marrying the daughter of the architect, maybe not all that stuff, but somehow the Ronin did gain the information they needed about the place they wanted to attack, the number of men guarding Kira and other important clues that would help them plan the attack. Which, in the meantime, fled from Kyoto, and avoiding the eyes of the remaining spies, got to a secret meeting in Edo with other Ronins who were still committed to the revenge plan. Initially, it seems that many more Ronin had said they would participate. But as months went by, quite a few of them had started thinking that revenge at the price of disembowelment was not quite as hot of an idea as it had seemed initially. Many of them had moved on with their lives and had gotten over their anger over what had happened. Oh, is it this weekend that you guys want to attack that guy and then disembowel ourselves? Oh man, I'm so sorry. I really don't want to miss this, but you know, my wife is visiting relatives and I got to watch the kids and, and next week there's this really awesome kabuki play that is having its opening night and I spent all of last year waiting to watch it. You know, I, I really wish I could make it with you guys, but you know, timing is not right. Best of luck to you guys though. You know, so by the time all the other samurai dropped out, a quick head count told them that there was 47 of them. 47 were committed to trying to gain revenge on Kira. And now the hard part begins. Coming to terms with the fact that you are almost certainly going to die if you were commit to this plan. Most of them began their preparation by sending farewell letters to family members. One of them Kamizaki Norusuke wrote to his wife the following. He said, It would not befit a samurai wife to shed sorrowful tears, so please be strong. Of course I will miss you, but this is what a warrior must do. That's intense right there. It would not befit a samurai wife to shed sorrowful tears, so please be strong. Of course I will miss you but this is what a warrior must do. By early 1703, all the chess pieces were ready. Heavy snow covered the capital of Edo on the night when the Ronin planned their attack. All the roofs and streets of the city were white since everything was covered in snow. The best archers among them 
would be stationed on the roofs of nearby buildings. Their task was to shoot anyone fleeing the residence once the attack started. So, you know, just in case someone was trying to leave to call for reinforcement, they would be cut down. The other Ronin, the ones who would actually break into the mansion, were armed with swords, spear, and things like the Naginata, which is the really cool-looking weapon with a curved blade at the end of a long staff. The plan was for Oishi and a group of men to attack the front gate so that defenders would concentrate there while another group of Ronin would attack the back of the building to try to break in at the same time. In the fictional versions of this story, the secondary group was led by Oishi's son, but it seems that historically this was not the case. Instead, like it was Oishi's second-in-command, Yoshida Kanesuke, who led the second contingent of men, and Oishi's son joined them but was too young to lead them. Now, clearly one of the problems in staging a major military operation involving nearly 50 people and assaulting a mansion garden by quite a few samurai was avoiding detection by the authorities for long enough as to get the job done. At this time, the city of Edo was guarded by a samurai police force, and the Ronin had to do whatever they could not to run into them. That's part of the reason why the attack was planned to take place at night. Doing it on a snowy night was also a good idea since the snow would absorb a lot of the noise from the steps. Having the archers in position to stop anyone trying to warn the police was yet another good move. But the Ronin still had to deal with Kira's neighbors from the nearby compounds. They were likely to hear the noises of the attack, I mean, it was kind of inevitable not to. And if they called the authorities, the Ronin would be in a world of trouble. So Ishii and these guys went for an extremely gutsy move. In an effort to pull a Hail Mary, they went to the neighbors and explained what they were about to do. Talk about taking a big chance. You know, Ishii wanted to clear up they weren't robbers attacking a household. They were samurai trying to do right by their master. He also wanted to reassure the neighbors no one would harm them in any way. And miraculously, none of the neighbors chose to raise the alarm. It appears that Kira wasn't the most loved guy in the neighborhood, so they didn't really mind too much that someone was trying to murder him. Or perhaps Oishi was just amazing at convincing people, or perhaps the neighbors were scared by what would happen if they crossed the run in the wrong way. Lots of perhaps. In either case, the neighbors promised they wouldn't call the police. The Ronin carried with them a manifesto, explaining their reasons and naming everyone involved. You know, clearly they weren't going to try to get away with it. You know, if they were going to be successful, they understood that authorities would come down on them and they were okay with it. Key among their reasons was the idea that a true samurai can't be expected to live under the same sky as the killer of his lord. If you want to get technical, Kira wasn't Asano's killer, but the 47 Ronin saw him as the principal guilty party, so close enough. Modern estimates suggest that Kira's household was made of probably about 
120 people or so. Actually, I'm sorry, let me take that back, about 180 people or so. Most of them were not fighting people, but this still means that once inside, they only would have to deal with lots of human beings. The first move was for a few Ronin to use ladders to climb over the outer walls and confirm that everybody was sleeping inside the household. One of them, Harasuemon Mototoki, fell from a ladder, injuring himself. He's probably happy that the snow softened his fall, but he still wasn't such a happy camper because the walls from which he fell stood quite high. The other non-injured Ronin who climbed the walls found the guard at the gatehouse seriously slacking in his duty. The poor man was asleep after a party in the mansion that had lasted until very late, and some Ronin woke him up to demand the keys to the gate. The guard woke up to see the deadly serious faces of armed intruders, and we can guess that he probably found himself in a sudden need of adult diapers. He explained that the keys were kept in the inner mansion so the Ronin would have to turn to plan B. So they began using heavy mallets to destroy the bolt and break down the gate. A similar move was being done from the entry in the back of the castle at the same time. Once they were in, they hammered iron clamps into the door of the barracks to trap inside some of Kira's samurai, so that the Ronin would only have to deal with the warriors in the living quarters, but not those in the barracks. So far, things had worked perfectly. Well, except for Hare Suemon Mototoki and his goofy falling from the ladder, but other than that, things have worked okay. The neighbors were not going to call authorities, they had managed to break in, the main attack was now fully on, and at this point, Toishi pounded on a drum he was carrying in order to signal the beginning of the attack into the mansion proper. Startled, those among Kira's samurai were not trapped in the barracks, they ran toward the courtyard to battle the invading Ronin. The fighting was fierce, but Kira's men were overwhelmed by the element of surprise. They were sleeping and basically caught in their pyjamas, whereas the 47 Ronin were in battle gear and ready for action. So if the few tried to break away and tried to run to ask for help, they were promptly killed by Oishi's archers placed on nearby roofs. Relatively quickly, the Ronin cut their way through the resistance of the household members, 28 were wounded or escaped, and 17 were killed. According to the sources that seem most reliable to me, about 14 of them were samurai. One was the gatekeeper and two were armed servants. Even though there are arguments among historians on this point, it seemed like the Ronin were doing their best to avoid civilian deaths and were only cutting down those who were resisting against them, those who were fighting them. But despite having scored a crushing victory and not having lost a single man, the Ronin were still less than thrilled because they could not find Kira anywhere. And that was the whole point of the attack, you know, it's like not let's break in and kill a few people, it's, it's, it's about Kira and nothing else really, so if they didn't 
get Kira. The attack would be a colossal failure. Could it be that he was not at the mansion on this particular night? That would have been bad right there. Their hopes were rekindled when they noticed that Kira's bed was still warm, so they knew that he was close. The Ronin wandered among Kira's families and servants, but they had vowed they wouldn't hurt anyone who wasn't trying to hurt them, so they let them be. But after a few moments of panic, the Ronin found what they were looking for. They discovered Kira hiding in a charcoal storage house outside. He was protected there by a couple of samurai who were promptly killed. Kira was dragged into the courtyard. And this is where the versions of what happened next differ. One version, probably a highly romanticized one, argues that Oishi offered to Kira the same dagger that Lord Asano had used to kill himself, so that Kira could do the same now. According to these sources, Oishi, ever the gentleman, offered to act as the Kaishakunin, which if you recall from the early part of the episode, you know, in part one, it was usually a trusted friend who would stand behind the person committing seppuku and cut off their heads as soon as they had stabbed themselves in the belly. You know, and the reason why they did it was for the sake of um, sparing the person committing seppuku the prolonged pain of disembowelment. Usually... Kai Shakunin would reassure the person about to commit seppuku that they wouldn't fail them. Being a Kai Shakunin was a serious high-pressure job, since he was expected that they would, be, they would be able to behead the person with a single swing of the sword. There's a famous story of a modern example of seppuku involving the writer Mishima Yukio, incidentally an amazing writer, probably batshit crazy, but nonetheless a great writer who he committed seppuku in 1970. And it seems that in this case the Kaishakunin failed horribly until a third man had to step in and show him how to properly cut a man's head. So the Mishima, the Mishima seppuku story was an example of what not to do if you are named a Kaishakunin. You, know, you don't want to hack him into a shoulder, you, don't wanna, you need to have that skill to be able to do one swing and chop the guy's head off. According to the same version of the 747 Ronin tale, Kira failed to show the proper enthusiasm for seppuku and refused, and so the Ronin just cut his head off. The less poetic version argues that none of this suicide offer business took place, and the Ronin just went ahead and cut off his head, or, or in an even more gruesome version that they had all stabbed him dead. Regardless of how it happened, at this point, revenge had been achieved. But something else needed to be done. Two of the Ronin now left to go announce what they had done to a chief inspector for the Shogun. The others began at 10 kilometers, which is roughly about a little over 6 miles, a 10 kilometers march to a Buddhist temple in Edo where their lord's grave was. The name of the temple was... Sengakuji. During this trek, they were very much concerned about being attacked by some of Kira's allies, 
who may try to recover, he said, so they assumed a defensive formation for the entire trip. But despite their fears, they got there without encountering any resistance. Once at the temple, they placed Kira's head and the dagger used to kill him on Azano's grave. Now that their job was done, the Ronin were ready to surrender to authorities. They were promptly split off in four different groups, under guard by four different daimyos, responsible for keeping them prisoner. And now the debate among the shogun's advisor regarding how to respond to this turn of events began to rage for over a month. Public opinion was divided too. Some of those who were less than sympathetic to the Ronin proposed the theory that the Ronin were planning on impressing some other daimyo with their loyalty and try to secure employment. And it was this desire that was at the roots of their action. The Confucian scholar Sato Naokata suggested this. He wrote, to give themselves up and wait for the shogun's ruling was nothing but a scheme to escape death and bask for a while in their own glory before finding themselves new employment. After reviewing the historical record, I have to say, I don't think there's, there's zero evidence to justify Naokata's position. It really looks to me like grasping at straws in a desire to completely turn the story upside down and make the event appear in the least heroic light possible. Some people still argue stuff like this today, and in some way it's kind of typical. You know, people, usually many people will fall for a romanticized version of events, and when they find out that it's not exactly as advertised, they don't abandon black and white thinking, they just simply flip the script. The heroes are now the villains. A story that was painted as all glorious now turns into all evil. But their efforts to cut the Ronin down to size are as silly as the efforts of those who want to portray them in an ultra-romantic light. There's plenty of evidence from the Ronin writing their farewell letters to family members before the raid and other things. You know, it's obvious from their words they did not expect to survive. In a particularly poetic letter, Yokugawa Kampei wrote, Tears are the lot of the warrior. And also the, the Naokata idea that the raid was an elaborate ploy to gain employment with another daimyo just doesn't make any sense, since realistically, anyone with three brain cells would have figured out that killing an official under the shogun's protection was not going to earn the brownie points. So having established this, let's return to the difficult choices facing the shogun's advisors. On the one hand, it seemed like a foregone conclusion that the Ronin would have to die, because clearly the government couldn't have people removing the heads of the shogun's employees and going unpunished. On top of it, even though the Ronin clearly tried to frame their action as an act of revenge against the Lord's enemy, what they had done was also indirectly a harsh criticism for the way the shogun had handled the whole affair in his condemnation of Asano and absolution of any wrongdoing on Kira's part. Even though they didn't frame it in this way, theirs was an act of rebellion. 
But on the other hand, the Ronin had shown extreme loyalty to their lord, which is something the Shogun clearly appreciated. Their willingness to die for their lord embodied precisely those samurai virtues that many people paid lip service to. There is no argument that the Ronin had broken the law, but they had done it in the name of honor. So this was a clash of conflicting values. Faced with an impossible choice between following the law and following their private obligations of loyalty as samurai, the Ronin had chosen loyalty, regardless of the consequences. The Shogun's advisors decided to break the impasse by pursuing a middle ground. They took land away from Kira and his own samurai had to become Ronin. They also punished one of Kira's sons and grandsons for not having done more to defend their relative. In regards to the Ronin, the Shogun would condemn the Ronin for breaking the peace and unauthorized revenge. Because there was actually a way in which technically revenge could be legal. You are supposed to go get permission from either a daimyo if it was done at the local level or from the Shogun if it was on a higher level. But I mean, the Ronin, of course, knew that the Shogun would never give them permission to attack Kira, so they, they haven't they hadn't bothered, but that was one of their crimes, was unauthorized revenge. So he would condemn them for this reason, but in recognition of the noble motivations that had moved them, they would be allowed to die as samurai and commit seppuku. Oishi is supposed to have greeted this news, saying, we consider ourselves fortunate to have been sentenced to die by performing seppuku. For this, we are most grateful. Now, if it were me, probably being told to disembowel myself was not something I would be monstrously grateful for, but perhaps I'm too much of a glass half-empty kind of guy. When I say they were granted the right to commit seppuku, let's remember that the distinction between seppuku and execution wasn't always that clear-cut. Pardon, the cut pun. Often, in fact, seppuku wasn't really ritual suicide, but was just a ritual act mimicking suicide. The person would often just touch the dagger, or in some cases just a fan that was there to symbolize a dagger, and then the person standing behind you that's the one who would cut off your head. And it seems like that is what happened to the Ronin. The youngest among them was Oishi's son, who was 15 during the attack and turned 16 in the few weeks until passing between the attack and when they would have to commit seppuku. The oldest among them was in his mid-70s. Finally, and I've read different dates, whether they fall in late February, in early March, but in any case, all 46 of them were decapitated in a ritual seppuku ceremony. In at least one case, however, Eronin actually committed seppuku the old-fashioned way. A certain Hazama Roku surprised the man in charge of beheading him by reaching for the dagger and plunging it in his own stomach without first removing his robe, as it was customary. In another memorable moment, the kaishakunin for Takebayashi Tadashichi was just having a bad day, and he messed up his first attempt at beheading, and he ended up wounding Tadashichi in the shoulder instead. 
Even though he was knocked down by the power of the blow, Tadashichi regained his posture and told the Kaishakunin to calm himself down. Which in itself, that's a pretty gangster thing to do. You know, you have a guy who's there to cut your head off, who just cut deep into your shoulder, and you get up and turn to him and say, hey, relax, take a deep breath. Now, these take a deep breath before you try and cut my head off again, pep talk, apparently worked. And a few seconds later, the second attempt saw Tadashichi said saying goodbye to the rest of his body. The 46 Ronin were buried close to their lord, in the same temple grounds. Since there wasn't quite enough bloodshed, several of the Ronin's wives also committed suicide. But wait a second, let's stop here one moment. Throughout the episode I kept referring to 47 Ronin, but now I told you that only 46 were executed. That's because Ronin number 47, Terazaka Kichemon, whose name was on the manifesto they carried, but he was not among those executed, and he actually lived to tell the tale and was apparently pardoned by the Shogun because he had not been part of the attack. There is a whole debate on whether he was or wasn't actually part of the attack, and why he was not committing seppuku with the other 46. The most prevalent interpretation is that he was not a full-fledged samurai, and as such not allowed to participate in the final act of revenge. The others obviously valued him enough to include him in the plot and preparation, and they also included his name in the written declaration of intent left in Kira's house. Other interpretations, other people suggest that he had simply changed his mind and ran away. And again, no one knows for sure. In either case, the authorities bought the version that he didn't participate, and so they didn't have him executed. He actually died at 87 years old in 1747. He was eventually buried with his comrades. Legend, and okay, this is where the screenwriters are doing their best, because this is where the legend kicks in. Legend has it that the samurai when spit on Oishi now went to visit his grave, apologized, and committed seppuku. Now, most historians believe this is just fiction, but it's definitely a popular legend believed by many. That's just because it makes for a, a great story, so it's worth reporting. I mean, the guy who supposedly had kicked Oishi when Oishi was pretending not to care about his lord suddenly realizes that Oishi had actually been a paragon of loyalty and honor, so he visits his grave and apologizes to Oishi's spirit for his mistake, and how do you say sorry if you're a samurai by committing seppuku? If this is made up, as it probably is, whoever made it up deserves a prize for some serious dramatic fiction. A few years later, after the death of the current shogun, Asano's brother was actually pardoned. The new shogun would restore the land to the, fa- to the Asano family. Well, a little less than the original amount, but still, some land is better than no land. So he would restore the land to the Asano family and thereby allowing Asano's former samurai, who had not participated in the killing of Kira, to have a job again. I can't even begin to tell you how many people have asked me to cover Japanese history in general, and the samurai story in specific. 
it's easily the most requested topic I get. I mean, in the next episode or the next few, I'm, I'm going to take a break and go into something else. But eventually, I will, I definitely plan to return to Japanese history. So why starting, why did I pick the first Japanese topic that I would pick? Why start with the tale of the 47 Ronin? Because it quickly became one of the most iconic revenge stories that captured Japanese imagination. The first play in a theater about the Ronin was staged only 12 days after the raid. Japanese censorship laws in those days forbade the portrayal of current events, particularly they put the government in an ambiguous light, as this story clearly does since it lionizes as role models people who were then executed by the government. So, you know, the authors had to change the names and move it to an earlier historical setting, but it was pretty clear that it was about the 47 Ronin. About 50 years after the event, one of the most popular kabuki plays ever was written on the same subject. Writers and directors quickly figured out that the 47 Ronin story struck a chord with people of all social classes. Many saw the Ronin as perfect models of idealized samurai behavior. By the time the Tokugawa shoguns lost their power during the Meiji Restoration in the second half of the 1800s, their popularity rose even further. One of the first things the new emperor did after the Meiji Restoration, one of the first things the new emperor did was to write about the 47 Ronin. And addressing the dead leader of the 47 Ronin, the emperor wrote, Yoshio, you and the others resolutely grasp the righteous duty, binding a lord and his vassal, in exacting revenge and then greeting death according to the law. Even a hundred generations later, people are still inspired by your deeds. I wish to express my deep appreciation and praise to you. It's interesting how history works. How a bunch of guys who decided to raise a middle finger to the laws of the state and exacted bloody revenge over a personal quarrel ended up being transformed into symbols of Japanese national identity. Their willingness to give up everything, including their lives, for the sake of doing what they believe to be the only right path available to them has propelled the Ronin to becoming symbols of loyalty and honor. Outlaws, perhaps, but honorable outlaws.
Now that we're done with our narrative, I would like to take a minute to thank a few folks who make it possible for me to keep producing podcasts. Let's start out with the two sweet souls who are donating on my Patreon at the $50 level. That are Mr. Justin Maples and Josh Riddle. Thank you guys so much for your generosity. Also a big thank you to any of you who have been using the History on Fire Amazon link. That's deeply, deeply appreciated. Big thank you to a new sponsor for this episode. That's Nordic Track. I think whatever money I'm gonna see from them, I'm getting the feeling that it's all going to go back in their bank account because I'm gonna use it to buy some of their products because they have just way too much good stuff. I'm very passionate to about working out. I really dig it and very often I don't find the time for it because I just spend way too much time working and researching and doing things like that. So I'm always kind of frustrated about that. It's one of the few things that for the most part I'm really happy with the way things are going. That's one thing that's bugging me. I think that Nordic Track may help me solve that problem because some of their exercise equipment, particularly their desk treadmill, which would allow me to put a computer there, still work a little bit, but at the same time move, walk, maybe close the computer and go for a run, that would be something that would seriously improve the quality of my life, so I have my eyes on that product. If you guys could also use some great treadmills, exercise bikes, incline trainers or things like that, you can check out Nordic Track products by, you can get $75 off if you go to nordictrack.com forward slash history and use the offer code history. Again, that's n-o-r-d-i-c-t-r-a-c-k.com forward slash history and you get $75 off. Also big, big thank you to Blue Apron that has been sponsoring History on Fire all year long. For that, you guys are amazing. But beside the fact that they make History on Fire possible, these guys also make some amazing food delivered straight to your door with easy-to-follow instructions. The quality, I can... I'm amazed at how good the quality is. It's. I've just finished eating it today. I ate one of them yesterday. I'm consuming it like that's no tomorrow. Uh, it's become a big part of my diet, whatever Blue Apron send my way. So check them out because they have a special offer for History on Fire listener. You can check check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free if you go to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Big shout out also to Devon Field from the Human Circus podcast. Human Circus is a really interesting podcast. I've been listening to quite a few episodes lately, particularly his series about the Europeans traveling to Mongolia, which you know, I think everybody who listens to history podcasts at some point or another has listened to the classic Dan Carlin Rat of the Cans series, which is one of the most amazing history podcasts ever produced. And so, with that background in mind, I enjoyed listening to Human Circus episodes tremendously because it gave me kind of a different look at the interaction between Europeans and Mongols at the time, 
Now, that's one particular series. Human Circus has also followed the journeys of many other medieval travelers, also the ones who are not going to Mongolia, but to other destinations. So I've been enjoying it quite a bit. There's a first-person perspective through the diaries of some of these travelers that they explore. Very good stuff. So if you're looking for another history podcast, you can do a lot worse than checking him out. Um, I think Devon has done a great job, so check out Human Circus Podcast. Also, big thank you to my regular sponsors, Omnit and Datsusara. Uh, for Omnit products, you can go to onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount on a lot of their flagship products. Uh, in particular, lately, I've been consuming some of their supplements, enjoying them very much. So check them out. On it as an extremely, it's, it's always hard to put into words because there are so many different products in many different categories. So I could just go on and on telling you about different things. But the easiest thing is just for you to go to onnit.com and check it out for yourself and see if out of the dozens and dozens of things they have to offer, if there's something there that fits your lifestyle and can benefit you. So check them out. And speaking of check them out, if you're ever in the bar in the market for bags, backpacks, computer bags, even wallets, martial arts uniforms, basically anything that can be made with hemp, uh, your first destination would be dsgear.com. Um, they have been supporting us from the very beginning, so one way to say thank you is to check out what they have to offer. Last but not least, thank you to NeverTapGear.com that sponsor the MMA career of Savannah M. Uh, they also make some amazing knee braces that I use when I work out to protect my joints. So if you can use such a thing, check out NeverTapGear.com Having said all that, I am going now to shut up and wish you an extremely good day. And I look forward to picking up a new story and telling you some other wild tale in about a month from now. We're going to move across time and space. We are leaving 1700s Japan and we're going to move to a different time and a different land. 